This will be our final show into the new year. So, good Merry Christmas, good Happy New Year, get all that good stuff, or maybe it's a Happy Christmas and a, and a Merry Year. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how it goes. You know what I mean? I'm not very good at this stuff, Mike. That's why I bring you along. Jason especially, uh, especially a Merry Christmas to Jeff Fisher or Billy Taylor. Oh, see what you did or there. Or anyone else that may Name be somebody. the next football Woo-hoo. coach. T. Martin. Who else? Who else did you have? I hope everyone. DeMarco Murray. Has a Merry Christmas. Jason Witten especially. Jason Witten. Jason Witten especially. Don't have a return. Merry Christmas. Right, uh, uh, do you know who the football coach is going to be yet? No. No, do I don't either. Okay. No, no idea. So uh, let's just get that out of the way early. When this goes out, we will not know. So if it breaks either during this hour we record this podcast or in the hour after the podcast, will we do an emergency pod? I don't know. I don't know. We'll wait and see, uh, depending on... What happens if the announcement is Wednesday while I'm traveling to Georgia? Could we do a, a call in Sandos uh, from the road and get our thoughts? Maybe. Will there be a uh, right after Christmas emergency? I don't know. Will there even be something by Christmas? Again, I do not know. Let me say there's some really hilarious reporting going on right now. The only real stories that have come out have been – really worded oddly they've not contained a lot of new information and then people have run with those reports and seem to think that they are loaded with fact and evidence that someone's going to be the head coach of ETSU football I'm not sure if people fully understand when someone interviews for a job it's just like every other job they are not guaranteed the job there are other people being interviewed there are other people in contention it's not just simply whoa, this person interviewed, so they must be the candidate because they're a big name, and we know who they are, and so this must be happening. That's not how it works, especially if you have no other evidence to offer to bolster that case. I I have been uh, really flabbergasted and taken aback by some of the, I'm not going to call it irresponsible journalism, but it's been portrayed in such an odd way, this entire coaching search of, well, here's a name, got to be the guy. Why? Why has that got to be the guy if he's interviewed along with presumably a number of others that have interviewed? Why him? Why is he the one guy? And I'm not going to name who that is, but you can probably guess who I'm talking about. Like, what if he doesn't want it after the interview? What if the university's like, I think I'm going to go a different direction? Whatever the case may be. Like, But just saying, oh, yeah, you know, uh, looks like ETSU found their man because they interviewed him. Isn't that why you have an interview, to figure out if he is your man or not? It's just been very strange. Has been odd. 
Um, and I hope in the byline of this actual podcast you put no football head coach news <laughs> just on the top. Or do you not? And everyone listens to every single second. Or they turn us off after we just announce we don't know. But after I trolled them about 90 seconds in by saying Merry Christmas to Jeff Fisher. Yeah, yes, uh, which I enjoyed. Yes, I enjoyed. But, it, it, but that's how it kind of goes because in the old days – it used, and believe this or not, you would have to have the full search. You would have to do this. Now, the state changes because the state of Tennessee um, held everybody to the standard of how every state employee is hired. So just like I got my job, just like Matt Gallagher got his job, you were, even though we were both in place, we had to uh, do a resume. We had to wait 30 days. We had to go through the initial process, and we had to be announced a finalist, and we had to go through that. And then, So that's actually how the head coaching searches used to go. And so there used to be not a lot. I mean, you would know who all interviewed for because public record. Then you would know who the three finals were because they'd have to announce it. And then the papers would do stories on it. And I, I mean, when Ed DeCellis was named head coach, uh, well, heck, even Murray Barto, um, Mark Schloniker was one of them. And I'm trying to think of the other one was uh, Pastos, Jimmy Pastos was the other one. And so all three finals were in a paper, did interviews, they did all whatever. And so it was a thing. But the University of Tennessee was like, no, we don't, if we're paying somebody this amount of money and this is such a thing that they got it changed at certain positions, you can waive it. And since then, there's not a lot of information. And so, and at Tennessee, I mean, people were reporting on people's planes. Well, his plane landed here or this donor's plane went there. And then they're speculating, well, this plane landed somewhere near Tulsa. So clearly, uh, you know, Lincoln Riley was interviewing, or Mike Gundy, or just anybody who was in like a 27-hour radius of Oklahoma. Somebody's heard of Oklahoma, they interviewed. Some of the more embarrassing but also hilarious reporting of people actually at the airport watching planes land and seeing from hundreds of feet away who is getting off them when, come out of Knoxville. I mean, it's, yeah. When they rumored that Randy places, Sanders but. had interviewed for the offensive coordinator's job because a plane had landed at the Tri-Cities and then at Tyson McGee, and I looked at Coach Sanders, and I'm like, hey, did you know you were in Knoxville interviewing for the offense coordinator job yesterday? And he goes, well, that's funny because I was wherever he was. And I said, yeah, that's interesting. And he goes, oh, by the way, if that was going to happen, Phil Fulmer knows where my parents live in Morristown. It's a halfway point. We'd probably just meet there. I'm like, exactly. That, that's sort of my point. So um, I did have a few people who uh, did track apparently some donors' planes and let me know uh, that uh, one of them hasn't even took off in a week, so that's good, I guess. Uh, the other one, which is also a little bit psychopathic, that we can find out these things in public record and the old FAA and all that. But it is because the information isn't there. People are reaching. They want to know the amount of messages that I get are absurd. I'm sure now that you've been plugged in for several years now, I'm sure you are getting – Equally uh, absurd. I mean, I just did a luncheon for a civic club that my wife's a part of, and I answered the question so many times. I don't know that when my wife introduced me and the kids, I, I had her lead with, you may know my husband, the voice of Bucks, who does not know who the new football coach is going to be, and these are my kids. And so that's the way to go. So that being said, I have no idea. Uh, it will be interesting. We would clearly go wall-to-wall. We will clearly have an interview with the head coach. Um when the time comes and, and when that is, I, I don't know. And when we'll cover it, I, I don't know because this time of year, everything's kind of shorthanded and we're holidays and we're trying to get, you know, somewhat of a semblance of a life ourselves, which never really happens. Uh, and obviously we got games to cover, like Georgia coming up on Wednesday. Mike last night went to Knoxville. Then, of course, he's got the game Thursday morning with St. Bonaventure. And then we got, you know, games right after uh, – 
Christmas going into the new year, which are important games because that's going to be league play for the men's side. Yeah, so the information isn't there, as you said. And while we'll hear stuff behind the scenes and all this different you know, rigmarole that happens throughout the process of any coaching search, um, you'll also hear a lot of stuff that doesn't have any value to it. But you also don't necessarily know what has value and what does not leading up to the hire. And really, stuff flushes itself out over time. But the people that are trying to make something out of nothing are the ones that are really annoying me, honestly. And so if you're tuning into this podcast for information, behind-the-scenes info about a coaching search, virtually, I don't think we can give that even if we did have it to give. I'm pretty sure there would be a documented reason to then fire either myself or Jay Sandoz. <laughs> so that. we're not going to give that. And secondly, there isn't a lot to give in the first place um, in terms of, you know, things that can be offered outside of the obvious that has been out there, that has been fact-checked, cross-checked, and reported by um, those that have done the reporting on it. Those have do- that have done the reporting on the reporting and tried to pass it off as original reporting and make it seem to be a sure thing between one party and another, um, it's embarrassing. So stop. Don't worry about it. Forget everything that you have seen or heard over the last week or two because everything can change on a dime in these coaching searches. And the fact that no one is hired right now could mean everything or it could mean nothing. And you and me don't know. Other people don't know. And those that are doing the reporting on the reporting don't know. And those that did the original reporting don't know any more than they originally reported. I mean, the greatest troll of all time would be the smokescreen that somebody got the job that no one's ever, not that they've not heard of them, they've not heard connected to the search, right? That would be one of those that comes out. The only coach I've ever known since I've worked here that I had a heads up for about a week before they started was Steve Forbes. And that still leaked a few days before he was named, but it was also not really leaked until after Wichita State lost a game. Other than that, um, I didn't know Murray Barto, um, even though I knew the three finalists was going to get the job until it was announced. I didn't know uh, Carl Torbush. I think I knew roughly one day because we had to get some stuff together. I knew that Randy Sanders was probably 12 hours before he was announced. Even Jason Shea was, was not passed around as if it was uh, the gospel there. So, it's one of those two. That doesn't mean Billy Taylor isn't. You know, I'm sure they've talked to Mike Rader as well because he's been a head coach. Uh, now it's a D3 level, but he's been a head coach. He's ran a program. You know, it wouldn't shock me if they didn't talk to him as well. Um, we probably at some point will know some names, but honestly there will be names that you don't know that interviewed. And there will be some names that we'll be privy to that we know we interviewed that we're not going to be able to tell you that they interviewed. So I like the fact that it – does have a little bit of cloak and dagger and a little bit of a smoke screen. And I guess the biggest question is when it comes out, how much of a smoke screen was a few candidates and how much of it was realistic and just fell through and all that. that that's sort of the fan side of it. At some point in time, there's going to be a press conference. There's going to be a head football coach. That's going to be the guy. And then we'll be doing our side of it, and we'll let everybody else worry about what they did and didn't know, how it went down, which will even be more ridiculous because then the rumors will come out. And then depending on uh, different coaches' agents, right, then the misinformation there will go. Because I always enjoy, usually P1 
people know who's going to be a head coach, not because the agent of the person gets it, but the other two or three people that people have figured out that they are candidates, theirs will release that they're no longer interested in the job. And then people usually can backtrack there. That's always a good one when it's the, you know, I'm not going to get the job, so you know what, go ahead and take my name out. I'm, I'm not really interested anymore. And that's, and that's what happens a lot, um, unless you're trying to get um, your school to pay you, Chris Chance, and, and get an extra, you know, $150,000, $200,000 on, on your paycheck. Congratulations. I don't, I don't fault the man for it. And I think he's still winning down uh, in New Mexico State. But still, uh, that being said, uh, we don't know anything. Yeah. Uh, we did all that to tell you we don't know anything. And it's laughable. Uh, the, the, questions, the questions that we get, the innuendos uh, that I get on, like, I guess I'm supposed to read between the lines of if there's a, another, like, just the email I got a few minutes ago was like, all right, Jay, Jeff Fisher, can you just give me a yes, no, or perhaps? I'll assume if I don't get a response that it's a yes. <laughs> I was like, I was like, yeah, perhaps, perhaps I could be the guy. I don't, I, yeah, sure. I don't, I don't know. And for now, like my only request is just of the little information that's out there, enough exaggeration of what that information means. Like just enough, enough. Speculation is super fun, and putting pieces together is super fun. But when you start reaching and grabbing at nothing, and I'm not saying what has been out there, that information is nothing, but it's this much information. I'm holding my fingers very, very close together. I'm squeezing Jay Santos' little head even smaller from about five feet away with my two little fingers. There's about that much information out there on this coaching search. And trying to blow that up into the size of what the news will be when there is a actual hire is laughable, and especially when it's coming from not fans. Do your thing, fans. Like, it's fun. This is a fun time. But when it's coming from what are supposed to be legitimate news outlets like stop it it is so so bad and if you are a fan reading that stuff please take it with a grain of salt because there's going to be more that comes out there's going to be names that are floated and you're going to hear more than just the one thing that seems to have driven this entire search and that one piece of information that is out there right now should not be passed off as this end-all, be-all type thing. If it was, the deal would be done, it would be signed, he would be on campus, we'd be introducing him, we'd be talking to him, we would have more to speculate on, more to peel back in terms of layers and talk about all this. Let's take a break. I'm, I'm fired up. You're, okay, I, I, all right. Look, I, it's supposed to be Christmas, it's supposed to be happy, it's supposed to be the holidays, and now I'm in this, like, angry mood, right. I don't like it. Yeah, you're a you're, uh, little angry man. Is that, is that fair? All right. Say no sake. We're going to talk basketball for this time out on the Bucket Air Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky. But for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee lottery has probably funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you played. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. All right. That was only 30 seconds, but Mike seems to be less red. I mean, it is, you know, red and green season, and 
You got fired up, broke sweat. Usually, I'm the guy game. over here that's chubby and sweating through everything, so I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. But uh, I'm looking more red okay? than green right. right now. I mean, I you know, yeah, you're, face, you, you got you kind of getting to a pinkish hue there. I have a green sweater on, so I did look like a Christmas tree for quite a bit there during that segment. I, I just, I, I hate, it's it's so stupid. It's so, okay, we're moving on. We're turning the page. Basketball. Okay. Basketball. We have talked Woo, basketball. very little about basketball. And now, obviously, we have had tons of show provided by ETSU football. And thank them for that because it was such an incredible season. I actually said one of my Buckmans today that you can hear on WXSM AM 640, the Sports Monster, at 3, 4, and 5 every weekday, that it's not football season anymore. It's an obvious statement, but it was the first time I had verbally recognized it on air. It is not football season anymore. ETSU football had a great run. It was unbelievable. One for the ages, memorable to the nth degree. But today was the first time that I sat back and said, I'm accepting it. It's not football season anymore. And that's when I realized that we have not really had since our show right before the season where we deep-dived on every Southern Conference team we haven't really talked in depth about basketball, and there's a lot to unpack over 12 games for ETSU. Uh, yes, I would love for you to start because I'm curious of your thoughts. Because we honestly haven't talked so much at all on air, but really even off air about like what do you think's going on in terms of the pluses, the minuses, where the team's at, which is where you thought it would be or didn't think it would be, and where's it going going into the last right. conference game. So, of the year. so I, I think let me start where I thought it would be is about where it is. The problem is it got there very differently than how I thought it would get there. Um, the first couple games I thought would be tough, and I gave – we did touch on the first couple games and then the tournament down in um, Florida, and, and that kind of broke a little bit the way I thought it would as far as I gave everyone the breakdown of the first two games, Evelyn Christian, Austin P, Avon State. Tennessee, Middle Tennessee State last year was atrociously bad. USC Upstate's very bad. So, and both games were ugly wins for ETSU. And then ETSU started to play better. And then ETSU went on a, a run and, you know, rattled off five, six wins in a row. Then took on a very good UAB team that, honestly, ETSU got off to a blazing hot start and then just kind of came crashing back down to earth. In all honesty, just, just, couldn't continue the hot shooting, ended up losing that one to a very good UAB team. Then they beat Lenore Ryan, and then Moorhead State, which I didn't get to see uh, live, but went back and watched the second half because everybody talked about that, and just ETSU made a lot of shots and, you know, didn't get a lot of stops but made shots. And I thought a very good win against a very good team, similar to Murray State and, honestly, Missouri State. And then North Carolina A&T, and UNCA, and now I'm kind of scratching my head going back to the drawing board because doing some things that I thought they were past. Now, a couple things I think that I'm going to go ahead and say I think I can – I think I know for sure. When David Sloan is scoring and distributing, Bucks are going to win. When he's not doing one or the other, they seem to struggle. His last two games, he's 2 of 15. Now, he did have nine assists in the A&T game, but he only had one assist and was one of nine in the UNCA. Now, that is one of those odd stats to where do I think that means Sloan needs to take 20 shots a game? No, I don't. There is something to be said that it appears, looking back just generically through box scores, that when he is 
doing both, they have been very successful. He's the best distributor of the basketball. I made a bold prediction. It's probably not going to hold true that I thought he would have the best assist-to-turnover ratio in the Southern Conference. So, now, he's up there in assists in the Southern Conference. He's up there in assists nationally. But he's probably not going to have the assist-to-turnover ratio that I thought he was going to have. Now, he's still 54 to 34, so he's about one and a half, you know, give or take. So, solid numbers still. But your guy Alex Hunter is in this conference. Uh, yeah, and he's – Like 12 to 1 or something? Yeah, he's, he, he does – yeah, he takes care of the basketball. Now, he's asked to score a little bit more, so my guess is th- those numbers will go down a little bit. But they're not going to go tragically down, are they? He is leading the league in assistant turnover ratio. At Three or four to one. Two point nine to one. Which then is, Ryan Larson, your guy from Wofford, Stephen Clark, Tyler Moff, Malachi Smith, then David Sloan. So he's fifth or sixth, right? Sixth, yes. tied for fifth. Okay, so I I think David Sloan's turned the corner where he's going to be that guy. I think a couple things have changed. One, Silas Hideke, not with the team anymore. I think that changes things dramatically for Charlie Weber um, twofold. One, I think Charlie, it was a good fit for him to come off the bench and provide some energy. I think, two, Silas Hideke's defense is maybe one of the most underrated things of ETSU basketball in the last couple years. I think he made game-winning defensive plays where people remember a block shot, took a charge. He had a couple big ones late. I don't think people understand how vocal he was and how high a basketball IQ he was on calling out defensive screens and other things that come into play. I think Coach, I asked him that specifically, and Coach expounded upon better than I could and articulated better on why a decade was better at Charlie at all that. Now, the more reps Charlie gets, the more comfortable he gets, then – Yes, but Silas, who is a business guy, is a, you know very quick-witted, thinks on his feet. I'm not saying Charlie's not quick-witted. I'm just saying Silas decade Extremely it, smart. Yes, the IQ, not just basketball, but in general, he is a very brilliant man. And so I think he does things defensively you're going to hurt. I thought it was interesting. I didn't realize Vonnie Patterson got hurt in practice and was limited and has been hurting with a knee and missed five or six days, and so he's working his way back in, and that makes more sense why he hasn't looked himself because Vonnie Patterson is usually the energy guy, the glue guy. He's, make, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not been able to do that. He's not been able to get some minutes that I thought he would be able to get. I think now Mohab Yasser, Yasser has been great at what he's been doing. I think he's still got a shot to be freshman of the year as he continues to just get better. I think – Looking just last game in, in a vacuum, if Ty Brewer understands that he does not need to shoot threes and please stop shooting them and just go 11 for 11 from the floor all the time, which he can, because the one thing Ty Brewer can do is the same thing Ladarius Brewer can do. They jump very high on a jump shot. And not just jump high, but the hang time on a jump shot is up there. And Ty, very high release. I mean, he's, Correct. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a gr- good point. He has long arms. His, ball, his shot is above his head. And... You know, it's not quite Bill Cartwright, but it's above his head and very hierarchy. I, I think if Ty Brewer can live in that world of the two-point shot, I think if Ladarius Brewer can stay out of the eight turnover games. I mean, let's, I mean, I don't know. I don't remember having too many eight turnover games. Maybe that's an anomaly, but obviously he was feast or famine. Early was great in each half. In the North Carolina A&T game, he was terrible at, at each half. The other thing, I think it's – starting to hurt ETSU because they don't have a – I know eight, nine men is about what most people rotate 
but that's literally all they've got on the bench. So you've got to be careful about certain things. And the foul trouble and the foul uh, d- disparage, but the last couple games, I think he's just taking 10 free throws to 45. And I think those numbers overall, if you look at, and I know Kevin Brown's crunching all those numbers. Oh, I've got them here, oh, too. Oh, you already got the free yep. throw numbers? Okay, well, you can go over that in a second. But those numbers are starting to add up. ETSU has gotten better from three, but I would like to see them get better from two and not as many threes and try to get to the free throw line where they're still top 10, 15 in the nation in free throw shooting. Okay, so let's start at the three-point line. Bucks are bottom of the league in three-point percentage. And it seems the temptation with this system that Coach Oliver wants to run, which if you've listened to the coaches' show and you've heard pre-post game with you, it seems that it wants to be up and down the court, fast-paced, 75 shots per game is what he keeps throwing out, 75 or 75. To 80 possessions. Correct. And so he wants to get up just tons and tons of shots. Now, the thought process for me looking at this roster is there should be three people shooting threes. Jordan King, David Sloan, Ladarius Brewer. And those three are shooting the three at a 38% clip. The rest of the team is shooting it at a 24.5% clip. 31 of 125. But King, Brewer, and Sloan, I love it. Shooters fire away. And if you want to take 33s per game, 25 to 30, whatever it ends up being in Desmond Oliver's system, to me, 80 to 90% of those got to come from those three. Now, so far this year, you've had 184 taken by those three of the 309. That's only like 60%, which means 40% is for the others, which, again, are shooting 24.5% from deep. A little bit on each of them. Not all of them, but the ones that are taking the majority of the threes that are not those trio of King, Brewer, and Sloan. Ty Brewer, 35% from three down at Sella. And that was encouraging to me coming in. I was like, okay, well, that means that He's kind of got a full offensive game going on. Now, since he's been at ETSU, he's below 30%. You have to look a little bit deeper at these stats, and you can't just say, and I made the mistake of it, that, oh, well, he's you know, 35%. Like, that's going to be a pretty serviceable three-point shooter. Like, that to me is, at the Division One level, right at the bottom end of the percentage range where you should be taking threes regularly. The asterisk comes in his time at Sella and the fact that he really only took one and a half per game. And that's attempted. That's not made. That's attempted. And he's about double that here at ETSU, which says to me that with the percentages going down, that he's taking tougher shots and forcing the issue from outside, which is leading to that lower percentage. Bonnie Patterson. I know Coach Oliver has said he's a better shooter than 30% from outside. And he shot it. In Juco, at 40% from deep at Johnny Logan College. But since he's come to ETSU, his two years here on the court coming into this year, 27%. So at the Division One level, it looks to me like he is right about a 30% three-point shooter. He's at his best when he's, as you mentioned, glue guy, driving, dirty work, inside the arc, go down low, get rebounds, get putbacks, follow-up shots. And that's not what he has been in this system. I get Coach Oliver wants to run this the way he wants to run it. I think these are key moments in the early development of him as a head coach because 
at times, this has not necessarily worked for this group of players. And he mentioned last night in the coaches' show, look, I want to get as many shots as I want to get up, 65, 70, 75, whatever ends up being with turnovers. Uh, and if we shoot 35%, I think we're still going to win games. That's a low percentage. Yeah, and I, I think his and he worded that funny, but I think what he was trying, and I'm just, I'm just trying to, I think he's saying if they had ten less turnover, ten less turnovers, and those were shots, and he shot thirty five percent, which makes sense, right? I mean, it, sure, you're not trying to put an absurd amount of percentage on something, but if you were able to get more shots go in on ten extra shots, right? Just you're. Scoring goes up, right? It's simple math at that point. I think that was more of what he was trying. I don't think he worded it the right way or he worded it funky, but I think what he was trying to say is if we take the 10, 10 turnovers, like, all right, if you get 18 turnovers last game or whatever it was, if you had eight turnovers and you took 10, they weren't turnovers, you get shots, you hit three or four of them, now all of a sudden, boom, that's, you know, eight, 12, depending on threes, twos, whatever, or get fouled, whatever, you get more opportunities. I think that's what he was trying to say. I just think it came out a little funky, but I think that's what he was trying to say. So, and turnovers are obviously another piece. Three losses in their last four Division One games, averaging 17 turnovers per game, and points off turnovers are 58 to 26 in those three games. Obviously, if you limit your turnovers to, what, eight to ten per game, it is hard to find a team – in America that is not successful averaging that few turnovers per game, regardless of what style they are playing. If you're up and down, back and forth, and you're averaging that amount of turnovers per game, and you're getting up that many shots, you are going to put up a lot of points. But to be able to do those two things, because obviously when you're getting up that many shots, you're going to be increasing your possessions. It is almost impossible to find that intersection of 8 to 10 turnovers per game and that many shots that you want to give up. I, I mean, you have to have a truly special group of players. And this group could end up being special. There is no doubt about it. They have the talent to be special. There's no question. I think you and me agree with that. But to find that intersection is very tough. To me, without catastrophizing, right, because keep in mind, we're just two possessions away from being 9 and 3. Appalachian State, final possession. I know you're still bitter about the charge versus block call. North Carolina A&T have to get a better shot than Ty Brewer falling out of bounds 17 feet as time expires. Um, and just the fact that, you know, you're 12-point favorite, so on and so forth, that was a tough loss. Um, to me, it comes down to a couple things. You have to stop shooting so many threes and get to the rim to get more free throws because, by the way, you're a top-five free-throw shooting team in the country, but you're averaging the least amount of free throws amongst any SOCON team, and that's including teams that live outside the arc and do nothing but shoot threes. Or you have to reallocate those three-point attempts and just get them in the hands of David Sloan, Ladarius Brewer, and Jordan King. And I know that means a tweak to the system, right? Because, again, it seems like with wanting as many shots as Desmond Oliver does, you can't be picky. You can't work deep into the shot clock every single possession to find the best possible shot. I don't want to say it promotes lower percentage shots, but it does kind of turn everyone into a shooter, right? Everybody's got the green light. But if that leads to the lower percent from outside and the lower conversion rate, then you almost have to play perfect in terms of the turnover game. And that's pretty tough. It, it's tough because when you come in and you start a new system, is it the system? Is it the players? And he's got a hybrid of – there's some players I think fit what he wants to do, 
And there's some players he's trying to get fit in what he wants Absolutely. to do. So I go back to 2019 football, if you'll go on this journey with me. And about seven quarterbacks play. And I remember asking Randy Sanders one time, Coach Show, why don't you just, you know, run some read option or, or you know, do this, do that? And he was like, because it's not, it's not what the program's going to do. We've got to get the program where it needs to be. And to do that, they've got to do this. They've got to learn it. And what do we see this year? Him resorting to plays they've not ran and things and guys understanding for three or four years who've been in the system what coach is trying to accomplish. So, football – a little bit more, and, and I'm not – a little bit complicated in some of that schematic stuff. But there are plenty of coaches that come in that want to press nonstop, that inherit a team that didn't press, that make a team that doesn't press, press, and they get hammered the first year or two, and then eventually the players come in, they've been running the system, and all of a sudden they're a great team, right? I mean, so we've seen this time and time again. So there's always this push-pull, and for fans – and for me, sometimes it's tough not to get hung up in, well, can't we make some adjustment to fit whatever? Yep. And the question, the answer is we don't know yet because it's still young in the season. It's not played out. If there continues to be losses, then I think there will be some changes. But right now you're looking at a 7-5 and five team, right? They're going to go to Georgia, finish that. Then you go league play. And if you drop three or four early league games that I think we'll see if Coach Oliver is about system and the long game, or is he trying just to win now while implementing some of the long game? That, that, that's really the question I've kind of asked, but not really gone at to that length to ask that very specific question. And to be honest with you, I think the answer would differ if I asked it today than two weeks from now. So, you know, because obviously if he's, they've taken three or four straight L's, five L's, then yes, I think he's probably going to say, well, yeah, we probably got to change something. So I think he's smart enough guy to figure that out. But if they win a few games, my guess is he's going to say, no, we're going to continue to run his system and do all that. So I, it, it's always interesting. And, and probably 2019 football, what it was and how it was handled, has probably changed my perception when it, when I hear a coach say that the system is important and they've got to continue to pound it in because in the long run they're going to be better for it. And I would never have ever thought, and it didn't even dawn on, on me until we were three or four games into this football season when I asked him, um, or maybe it was deeper in the season, five or six games in, uh, when he had broke out the, yeah, we had run that play in three or four weeks and, you know, I talked to him about it, and it's said that. And then the next week, they ran something out of a different set. And, and after like two or three straight weeks of that in the coaches' show, then I asked the question about 2019, and that's when he gave me the Randy Sanders the best answer I've heard about why that was then, and when I thought he should have, you know, tried to win a couple more games there. Well, what's winning two more games in that season when we can have the end product of where we are now. Now, again, that all seems moot because there's going to be a new coach and we don't know who's going to be here and what system it's going to be in. It may all be blown up, but the 2021 championship was given to ETSU in the greatest run or one of the three greatest runs in the history of ETSU football because of what they did in 2019, not giving up on the system. That's what's tough for me. Now, any other time in my life you ask me the question and you bring up these points, I'm going to say you've got to adjust for the players you have, and I would say that every single time. But I am mind jammed because I could never see that far ahead. 
and, and nor would I, right? Because I'm I'm still I'm still fanboy. I still grew up being a Buck fan, going to the games when I was a kid. That's what comes out when I lose my mind, screaming wildly. I've said this openly. If I would do any other team as my main team, I don't think I would lose my mind as I do in ETSU games because eventually I resort back to being a kid watching this with mom and dad in the stands. And so that's it. But I think that the answer he would give you right now is they're going to continue to work on the system because, in all honesty, if you still look up and down, besides A&T's the one, App State, okay, they're at least tournament team. They're going to be picked some belt. Tough road loss. Yes. A&T's the one loss on the schedule you look at and go, oof. Probably should have. I mean, I mean UAB's picked to win their league. UNCA I mean, by 15 on the road. I get the building was pretty empty. Well, also, and it's only an hour away. I, I will say this. The, 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 the rivalry that, that uh, Desmond Oliver didn't know was a rivalry between Drew Pember and Desmond Oliver is real. <laughs> because that guy, that was – that, and not only was it the great – and he deserves all credit. The, the best game he's played in his life since high school AAU. His best collegiate game, bar none. But there was clearly a grudge, I want to stick it to you, that I think sometimes comes into play – it's almost like when you play with a buddy and you're either playing hoops or golf or something, and and maybe maybe you never beat him or, or whatever, or he or vice versa. You you always beat him, and all of a sudden he beats you, and then he, he yells and talks trash to you as if it was the death match, and you didn't know you're in a death match. I kind of felt like that's what happened. I kind of felt like it was one of those situations where Oliver's like, man, it's, I'm so happy the kid's doing great, and that kid's like. You know, pointing his finger at him, laughing at him, talking trash to him, and I and I don't know if it was friendly trash. I don't know if it was he felt he got jaded at Tennessee. He felt like he shouldn't should have got recruited by ETSU, or I, I don't I don't know. Did he feel like Desmond Oliver actually held him back? At, at which some guys, you know, when you leave and stuff, you, you hold grudges over the last school you were at. But I mean, he averaged one point two points his first year and played in ten games his second year at Tennessee. And it's hard to argue because a couple guys that played in front of him, one you know, was John Fulkerson, the other one went one and done. So, I mean, I, I don't really know what the coaching staff could have done to Drew Pember other than go, like, guy, that's who you're playing behind. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I don't know what you want, but these guys are just better. But that was clearly – he was in a death match that nobody else knew that they were in. The fact it's a 15-point loss, I think, makes people's eyes pop because you're favored by three and a half. And the last time I actually went back and – looked at this today. Now, I don't have the exact lines, but it is rare ETSU has lost back-to-back games in which they were favored. That's probably fair. Rare. Now, probably the 20... End of the 2017-18 yes, season? Yes, that's what I was going to go with. The three Citadel straight home, home games. Yep, and I can't remember who the last two were. Furman Wofford. And, yeah, Furman. But, so, but I think Furman was the second game, and I think they would have been favored in both those games. Wofford, maybe, maybe not, but they were definitely favored in the first two. Last year is the... Six of seven to start league play came to an end after you went six and one to start. Those two, I can't remember who they were, but I looked at those and said, Ooh, it was Chattanooga with that home loss, AJ Caldwell, miracle 30 footer, and then on the road at, can't remember, but I think those may have been as well. But it doesn't happen often. Now, I'm stubborn, and I still think you coach to your players, right? The talent you have around you. I also think, and I know it sounds like I'm making this big indictment on Desmond Oliver. It's not what this is meant to be because I think if Desmond Oliver were to give up on a system right now and say, whoa, i got to change stuff because we lost a couple games in a row. 
that would be a catastrophic mistake because you have to be who you are and you have to believe in what you're doing. And if a thing or two throws you off that path, then you didn't really believe in the thing in the first place and you've given up way too early. So it's a very difficult spot to be in. And I'm sure he feels the pressure as a first time head coach, but is he going to be as stubborn as I am with the take of you got to coach to your players or is he going to find a nice middle ground, which I think is what he needs to do. You can't give up on the system. You also can't stay heels dug in and say, it's got to be this exact way because clearly with these back-to-back losses and three of their last four Division One games, I think there has to be a little bit of adjustment. This is how the college basketball season works from everything we've heard from previous head coaches and coaches around the country. You want to be playing your best basketball later in the season at the key time, going into March, hitting your stride, and it's going to be lumps along the way trying to figure out what a balance will be with a new coaching staff, a new roster in terms of role players at least, uh, with some roster flux in season as well. Now, free throw line you talked about, opponents are almost doubling up the bucks at the free throw line in Division One games. And again, if you're playing to your strengths, which appear right now to be driving to the bucket, and you have the athletes to drive to the basket, forcing the issue and getting to the free throw line, drawing fouls, which has, of course, as we know, a multitude of positives, not only the fact you're going to get easier shots, trips to the free throw line, things like that, but 69 of 85 from the free throw line versus Division One opponents this year. I mean, that is insane to me. Like, you take out the couple of 91s and the Bucks are averaging like eight and a half free throw attempts per game. And that is minuscule, especially for a team that's top five in the country in free throw percentage. So it seems so obvious sitting here, and I know it's not this easy for Desmond Oliver, but you're a great free throw shooting team. You have athletes that can get to the rim and finish at the rim. Go get yours inside. Because you're not shooting the ball well from outside, and you're taking low percentage shots, and it's resulting in low percentage results. So it seems like an easy shift, but obviously it is not that easy. One other thing, Charlie Weber has not been really as involved lately, and believe me, I am the last person that ever thought I would be saying this on this podcast. But this is credit to Charlie because he has showed this season that he deserves this kind of credit. He obviously wasn't very involved the first couple of games either. Those both losses, right? And that in these last couple, it seems like they, I don't know if it's intentional game planned him out of the offense a little bit, but for long, long stretches, he has not been involved in the offense and has kind of had to go and get his and just cleaned up on the glass and really acted as someone that is not really a focal point where you look at ETSU in games that he scored in double figures, they're 4-0, 3-5 without him in double figures. So, again... News to even myself, right? But he has become someone you need to have involved in a bigger way. So there's simple parts to it. There's complicated parts to it. It's way too early to damn the season, right? It's way too early to change the system completely if you're Desmond Oliver. It's way too early to hit the panic button if you're anyone involved with this program or watching this program. But I think there do have to be adjustments as you go forward here because this is what it looks like to me. People are taking – shots that should not be taken for them. People are not being put in positions that will make them successful in a couple of cases. And if you can reallocate, if you can shift, adjust your mindset and where people are in the court, 
and be good at that. And if you have a head coach that definitely seems like he is ready for this challenge and is ready to be the smart uh, individual leading this program that will make these type of adjustments, then you'll have better results. But there do have to be some things that I think uh, are tweaked going into a Georgia game that, quite honestly, looks kind of winnable tomorrow. No, no doubt. And I think they took a big loss. Uh, one of their, their second leading score going into yesterday's game uh, out with the season with torn ACL. And, you know, their first game after that, George Mason, who Kim English we looked up, who yep. was on the staff with Tennessee, uh, which is funny. So Desmond Oliver had the Georgia scout last several years. I'm familiar, and then Kim, Eng- Kim English just went and beat them. And then Dennis, Dennis Felton works for Kim English, who was at Georgia and was a head coach when Desmond was at Georgia. So we got a lot of ties right there. So I think he's going to have as much information on Georgia as I think anybody humanly possible can have. They also, as a team, were at uh, Coach Oliver's house and watched it together because, A, it's a team are going to play January 1st in Western Carolina, and then, B, it's the next opponent up. So it was a little twofold. And so – Getting back to a little bit of bonding, I think defensively, and I'm going to move on just because uh, sake of time, and I like to get to women's basketball too. But um, you look at Division One games; they're not. I mean, what App State scores 69. Now Upstate is atrocious yes. and, and scored 43, but they held Murray State, a good team, to 58, and they held Kent State to 51. But other than that, you're looking at Missouri State at 76, a non-Division One. At least McCray got 74. UAB 70, then um, 75, Moorhead State, 89, or 69, A&T, and 79. So there's only a couple games going under 70. So he wants to play the 80 to 70 game. It's not quite the 70 to 60s game that I think that ETSU fans the last several years have been used to. So I think maybe the new number is 75 and below. Uh, instead of 69 and below, I think we because of the number of possessions and the shot he wants to get, I think he wants – I think you have to move that number. I think that's a moving number because I know I've talked to a lot of people like, man, you know, just giving up 70 points, 70. The big thing's about 70 points. I was like, well, that was a different staff. That was a different style. That was a that was their goal. Their, their I do get, goals. though, why that's tough for fans to move past because that system was pretty successful. So it is a hard transition for fans that have watched wins and wins and wins pile up with things like that. But you're right. The system is different. And having not yielded the same type of results early – doesn't mean it's a bad system. Doesn't mean it can't work, but it does mean it's going to get blowback and pushback early. So I do get that. Yeah. So it, and you know again, it's all it, it's almost like dependent football, depending on uh, who's the head coach. If the head coach comes in and they want to go up tempo and play Sanford, they want to score fifty a game. It's, it's going to be tough to because you've been so used to trying to hold teams to under you know twenty four but below, and that number held true every game that they held anybody under twenty four points. ETSU did manage to win. There are two um, – I'm sorry, they didn't because uh, Chattanooga, right, just one time if the, uh, did ETSU give up over 27 to lose a game, which was the last game, North Dakota State, right, 27-3. Yep, so that was the only other time. So uh, it's just a different philosophy, different system. If you want to play that way, it's just going to be more up-tempo. There's going to be more scoring. I just think that number, you have to move it. Uh, and I think if they can keep it to 74 and below, so just say there's five more points on your expectations – and then go from there. And I, I may try to start keeping up with that number. 74 and below, where do they go? How do they do? And then 75 and above, what's the rate instead of the 69 number? I've got more on ETSU's defensive outlook and poll predictions, which I'm sure you're very prepared for. Of course I'm prepared for. 
Got my three. Are we going? Uh, Are you really? Yeah, quick break. Right wow, I believe San Osaki, go to the Buccaneers Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. all there is and goodness gracious they were i'll say this the not lacking energy not lacking passion not lacking effort it was um a listened last night which i was afraid for your life uh at least from the starting lineups that you had actually caught on fire and wasn't going to be able to make it it's very warm courtside. from from your description of that uh, but etsu obviously a uh, couple ladies no longer on the roster They've had to go with eight in the last several. Could get, and it would be welcomed if they get a, a few back. But for right now, just going with eight. And there's some new names and faces that uh, Simon Harris and his staff has had to rely on that has probably been earlier in their career. And we'll see how that goes if they're able to get uh, full strength or what would be full strength um, with the four back, go back to 12-woman uh, roster then we'll, we'll see how the extra minutes play out for those who have been playing. But you're clearly missing some scoring, right, in Carly Hooks, Demaya Griffin, uh, Jamar, uh, Jameer Houston, and Demi Burdick. And Demi Burdick, yeah, down low. Uh, uh, so that being said, I think it's been interesting to see what ladies have stepped up, right? We've seen Amaya Adams be the jack-of-all-trades, right, the – all everything, and to see her throw in, what, 19 the other day? Yeah. Career high. Then we saw Wake Forest, right? It was Courtney Moore. We've been waiting on, on her and her shooting ability to come up. And even just a simple story as uh, Jada Rice getting her first career bucket, and I'm sure it was a story, no matter how her career ends up, that that's a great story. Hey, I got a chance to get in the game at Tennessee, the most storied women's basketball program and the most storied women's basketball building. No offense to – any UConn fans, if you're listening, but that, that's Tennessee women's basketball is what put women's basketball on the map. And for her to get a bucket there, I thought that was interesting. I think Abby Carrington's had some good things. So I'd be interested to see if if they get some ladies back finally and get a little bit more at strength, how some of these minutes that other ladies have been asked to step up and play, how they'll be able to play. I think the one thing that is still – a struggle that what we've seen over the past several years is outside shooting. They just seem to not be able. They can put a game together, but they can't seem to two, three, four games, you know, where you're shooting, and I'm not even talking about made buckets, but just getting to 30% three or four games in a row. You know, even if it's a three of ten on the, on the low end, I think that's just the one constant that has been a struggle. It seems like the last, I don't know, three, four years, is that fair? at least the last three, 
and I'd have to go back and study the four years ago, but at least the last three, it seems like every podcast at some point in time we're talking about can they get some outside shots to fall because I feel like there's some things they do defensively, and again, some some of the matchups they've had, I mean, obviously you take the Tennessee game and on both men's and women's, and it skews a lot of the stats. You know, there are a couple games where it gets skewed, and and for ETSU men's basketball program, they've only played one Power Five. Well, for the ladies, they've got a couple on the board already. So, uh, three really, right? Georgia Tech, you add that in. Georgia Tech just walloped Connecticut a few weeks ago, or last week, or whatever that was. So they're clearly one of the better teams in America. And then you look at Wake Forest and the turnaround they've had in a couple of years, and obviously Tennessee and what they've been able to do. I know they had a little bit of a low, but they played three ridiculously talented. You know, two surefire top 25 teams, and Wake Forest is going to be competing in the ACC and probably going to be in the tournament. They're going to play three tournament teams, two of them that are going to legitimately fight for a chance to get the Final Fours. And so I think if you – and I've not taken those numbers out, but I bet if you go take some of those numbers out, the 75 points given up is going to go down um, tremendously in some of those. But I just feel like they need to get some help back. If they get the help back – Let's see what that does. I think when they get into league play, and again, some some of this has all kind of happened when you want it to happen in the non-league action, right? I mean, would you rather ETSU basketball be at full strength, you know, versus Mercer and Sanford, or would you rather be full strength versus Wake Forest and Tennessee? I, mean, I know my answer. I know your answer, but I'm just uh, that that's where they need to be. But I still feel like, you know, can they get? Ja'Kai Davis, who played great yesterday, and I'm sure a little bit of a homecoming for her and the fans and getting to play in that building. But can you you get consistency? She First couple games this year, double figures, right? Then 17 yesterday. So they continue to get some double figures out of her. They've got to be able to get Courtney Moore to figure out a way to get two threes a game. I'm not even begging for a lot, but 0 for 8 yesterday. And I know that's a bad matchup for her. I know that probably the person Gardner was three inches with – length and it was impossible but to get in league place she's not going to have to deal with that right not going to have to deal um unless they do something funky at mercer and and put somebody on her that's got a little more length but other than that she's going to be able to get shots off but she can't go oh and eight right got to be able to figure out how to get a couple of uh, of buckets to go down and then i don't know what what my adams i don't know what to think this is the first time we've seen her actively i think try to score you know she's basically been unselfish and try to do everything else but I'll be curious to see when they get some other people back in the lineup, will she be trying to score as they needed her to try to score? I think some of it, I think she's been smart. It's a need-based, right? She hasn't really forced the issue a lot in her career. But I, I don't know. I, it's hard to really give a great assessment right now of women's basketball because they've just not been at full strength, you know. But – They've got to have a couple people step up and, and, and make some shots and make threes, and they've got to get more depth. They've got to get a little better in the post. But they can do that if they get four girls back. I think the cool part of a really weird, disjointed six weeks and all of my sympathy goes out to Simon Harris and his staff for the six weeks that he's had to have to start his head coaching career and the staff that walked into this new situation and – had high hopes coming into year one, and then all of a sudden you've got a situation where two girls are no longer on the team. One of them is a senior you're counting on, three-plus year starter. The other was your leading scorer. And then you have this other situation where you don't have four young women and four of your main contributors, really, 
for a couple of games in the non-conference against some really quality competition and Carly Hooks, Demi Burdick, who I think with her, they just really miss her size because Ja'Kia Davis is the only true post right now that is active and on the roster and available. Um, then, of course, Demaya Griffin, who is really talented, and Jameer Houston, who, um, again, size, and the fact that she was really starting to round into form. I mean, she had scored, you know, near double digits for four or five games in a row after a slow start and having a bit of an injury, and then she's back, and you can see the skills that made her an ACC player really start to um, show through, you know, on the court. And without those four, you're left with Abby Carrington, Courtney Moore, Maya Adams, Sarah Thompson, Ja'Kia Davis, Malia Kurtner, Aliyah Vananda, Jada Rice, four true freshmen, three second-year players, and then one upperclassman. But to get back to what I think the cool part is, is that those eight have had a chance to kind of come together, look around, and say, hey, I've got to do it for you, you got to do it for me. You know, let's go out there and do our absolute best. There's no expectation. You know, I, Simon always says the expectation is the expectation. Well, he wants to win games. There's no question about it. Every coach does. But after that 13-point loss to Jacksonville State, he got them together on the court and told them how proud he was of them. And so, yes, the expectations, the expectations he likes to say, but outside of the figure of speech and motivational tactic that he has made it, the expectation adjusts based on situation. Because you just have had to look at these eight and say, realistically what I can ask of you is another one of the things that he often says to motivate them. You have to give your best for the longest possible period of time, whatever you do. And as long as you do that, then I'm going to look at you and say, you know what, you did your part today. And all of them can say that. Now, accomplishment-wise, I think it's great that you can see all eight and point to different things over the last number of games where there's been career bests, there have been best stretches of seasons, there have been moments for pretty much every player on the roster that's available that are going to be memories. You know, Abby Carrington, back-to-back double-digit games after none in her career. Courtney Moore, back-to-back career highs, you know, 15 points, then 18 points. Amaya Adams, the 19 you talked about. Uh, Sarah Thompson has had career highs in um, categories outside of scoring, right? Assists, rebounds, steals. Um, you know, Jakaya, we talked about in front of her home crowd. That's so cool, right? She had the 8 and 7 against Jacksonville State. Really calm, under control, um, really mature game from her. And then to be able to be in front of her hometown fans, sitting right behind the bench, 17 points and 8 rebounds, her best game of the season, of course, Bearden High School. Um, she looked like she was, you know, back in high school, right? She looked right at home uh, against the winningest program in the history of college basketball, men or women. Aliyah Vananda, first double-digit game of her career. Jada Rice, first collegiate points. Aliyah Kirtner's kind of still waiting for her moment, but she's gotten some extended minutes too. So that's the cool part to me. Obviously, it's a difficult situation. Hopefully you can get at least a couple of those four that have missed time back. Obviously, you're also without Makaya Dowdell, who coming into this year was someone that was one of your leading returners. Um and let's be honest, you know, the next couple of games after the gauntlet that the Bucks have been through are going to be a lot more manageable. St. Bonaventure is going to be a fight. Like, this is going to be a 50-48 game. I'm expecting maybe 100 combined points, and it's going to be a tight one. They're out of the 8-10. They like to make it ugly. They have a solid record. They've won seven of their first ten. But if you're able to play the type of game that they are – what they've won, I think every game that they've won has been by single digits, 
then there's going to be a chance for the other team to come in and clip you at the end. And that's what the Bucks will look at as progress, I think, right now. Like, stay in a game all four quarters because they have had stretches during this losing streak where they have put forth a good first half, right? Remember the Wake Forest game? They were down six at the half. Yesterday against Tennessee, down five after, you know, eight and a half minutes. It may not sound like much, but those are moral victories for a team of eight with four true freshmen that had been able to contribute very little coming into this stretch. And so considering the fact that you do have the players that you have, every moral victory counts. And every time that you execute on the offensive end counts. Every time you make a hustle play defensively late in the game, that counts, regardless of what the score is. So if you can, as you said, add some depth, add some size, because obviously last night the unfortunate part was there were just mismatches on the defensive end you're never going to see again. So I don't know how, when I asked this to Simon postgame, he said, you know, we just got to knock it in those situations. I don't know how teachable of those moments you can really take and move forward and say, all right, well, let's do this in this situation. You're not going to have a six foot four, six foot five individual on Abby Carrington or Sarah Thompson and so on play, you know. The next time you'll be facing that is the NCAA tournament. So there's a lot to unpack in these first six weeks. Um, all my positive energy is going to Simon and that program because um, it's obviously been a tough start. They walked into a tough situation. It's gotten tougher. But these next couple of games, it would be great to get a win before the holiday, great to get a win going into conference play. And if you can take back-to-backs and then move into the SOCON season, where there's nothing expected of you, and you get some players back. Demaya is supposed to be healthy again. And, again, wondering with the situation with the other three, um, what that will look like in terms of Simon and his coaching staff um, utilizing them. Uh, There's a key couple weeks here, and I'm hoping that those eight or the more than eight are able to adjust as they've had to and continue to fight and grind because there's a couple of opportunities out there um, to really turn this season around. I think you look at the common opponent. I'm a St. Bonnie's coming up. That's the next opponent. They play Cleveland State. And St. Bonnie's lost that one 58-49, which was a closer game than what ETSU lost their very first game of the season Cleveland State. But ETSU was able to score more points than Cleveland State or score more points uh, than St. Bonnie's did against Cleveland State. So what does that mean? I, I don't know. It means obviously the defense is the calling card for the Bonnie's, but they are pretty anemic at scoring. I think the only time they've, in, they've only got over 70 once, and that was their non-Division one game. That was it. So they've only gotten in the 60s uh, four times, and the rest have been in the 50s and some in the 40s. So they just – it's not who they are. They, they – they don't score a lot, but they play defense. They get going. This has the making of a game that could be a 48-45 ball game. And considering everything that ETSU has gone through and got coming back, if they were able to get that win, um, and again, St. Bonnie's has been very good at winning those close games, and ETSU obviously has not been in that many close games. So it's just a difference of what are they going to be able to do when they get to that moment. But if they're able to clip that game off, then you get Christmas. You don't play again until the new year. And then you should have a win against Lynchburg College. Then you're turning your attention there. That would be so huge for the team to just to beat St. Bonaventure. And then they got a bold prediction. I'll just wait on that. So we will will do that uh, bold predictions right now. Shohei Otani. I don't know if you heard this yet. He's going to pitch. 
Mark it down. Plus 10 here. Hit a buck 20. Max. So old school. There's not a soul that can stop the big three in New Jersey. That's in five, baby. Literally, the last person on earth that should ever be considered the U.S. national team is JaVale McGee. NIL stands for never in life, as in never in life will NIL be a real thing. No, you can't. You cannot show me one guy more dedicated to the university than Damari Monsanto. He will go down as one of the best to ever do it at ETSU. The newly fit Jay Sanders will never stop another drive at Johnson City Country Club. Senior Tour, here we come. Wake Forest is like 12 and 1. Speaking of Demario Monsanto. They're good. They had a buzzer beater the other day uh, against Charlotte in the uh, Hornets arena. How many? They blew a 19-point lead, though. How many but they people got the is Steve Forbes going to nickname Man Man? I mean, it's been done. <laughs> like, just everybody? I mean, there's other nicknames out there that he is really good, though. <laughs> there's no question. Alondis Williams. Pretty impressive. We got to go over our last bold prediction. And then make our bowl predictions because this is our only show of the week. I know everyone is devastated. But it is Christmas time, and it is holiday time. And quite frankly, Jay Sandoz is exhausted, and quite frankly, Mike Gallagher is exhausted. And so there is going to be time spent other places than the studio, which often smells like death, today included. Bowl predictions from last week, uh, UNCA versus CTSU. I said bucks by six or more and hit ten or more threes. Then I said Memphis versus Tennessee, Tigers win. And if you ask me, they're living rent-free in the heads of the Volunteers, so that is a W. Unfortunately, it will not go down as that in the scoring book. And I said that I would have the highest-scoring fantasy team in our work league, of which you did not make the playoffs, which does bear repeating. It is still possible that I am this week. Need some big points from Jake Elliott and Antonio Gibson. I'll check back in on that in our next show, which will be December 31st. You said Jordan King, 20 points or more. He got 13 against UNCA. Oregon over Baylor. Nah, Baylor won by 8. And then... The best bowl prediction of the week was Eastern Michigan or East Minnesota or Eastern Mississippi or whatever it was. EMU is what I have written down. I believe that's Eastern Michigan. Over East, Liberty, a 36-point win. Eastern Michigan. The Hurons. The Hurons. The, the Hurons, Hurons were decimated. They did, did not go well. I've got bowl predictions. Do you have bowl predictions? I do. This is for this week and over the next 10 days. You are up 13-4 to four still. Uh, I didn't take as many losses last week, which is going to – Go down and speaking of moral victories, I'm talking about ETSU women's basketball. Moral victory for me. I, I'm really relishing in these moral victories. You know, play-by-play guy for a team that's taking some moral victories right now, and obviously moral victories for me in bold predictions. I kind of match that same philosophy. Uh, Bucks haven't held the team to 65 points or less in a month. ETSU men's basketball. Kent State the last time. And by the way, if you look back at the Naples Invitational, Kent State just lost to Southern. Southern, number 234 in the net. Kent State is 5-5. Five and five. But the wins over Missouri State and Murray State have really held a lot of weight still. Missouri State has won four in a row, 8-4 overall, all four losses by six or less. Murray State only one loss, just beat Chap by 11, won seven in a row, and scored 74 or more each of the last seven. Bucks held them to 58. So since ETSU held them to 58, 74 or more. So that defense, ETSU's lockdown defense, when it is on, it is on. It is great. And it will be great over these next couple of weeks. Neither Georgia or Chattanooga will score more than 65. 
Yes. Okay. Hot, bold. Here are our right. bold predictions. Well, since we're not going to be back here to New Year's, I think it's. Uh, I think you know where I'm going with this. ETSU plays December 30th. They play national television. They play who? The Chattanooga Mocs. ETSU will go in and defeat the Chattanooga Mocs in the building and stick it to A.J. Caldwell. What do you think of that? I think if I still had the – I love West Miller. That one. Honestly, A.J. Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a guy. That's good stuff. Women's basketball, one 20-point game this season from an individual. That individual is no longer in the roster. Jayla Roberts against Cornell, by the way. That was a victory, the only victory for the Bucks this year over Cornell. She's not on the roster anymore, so looking at where that next 20-point game is going to come from, I'm not going to claim I'm going to know, but I do think that there will be a 20-point game from a Buck individual in each of the next two. Each of the next two games, one against St. Bonaventure and one against Lynchburg, and if you get my logic here, ETSU had the one 20-point game against Cornell, their only win, it would follow that both those games would be wins. So I'm going to go with the first game only. Just because it's the Division One game, but they're going to score over sixty, which there's only been two teams do. Kent State got to sixty-four, Bucknell got to seventy-two. Everyone else has been held under sixty. ETSU has struggled to say the least, mightily to get to sixty this season. I'm going to say ETSU not only wins the game, but they will score more than sixty on a team that doesn't give up a lot of points. Thursday, I think next Thursday. No, that's this Thursday. UCF takes on Florida. You have got to be kidding me. In some garbage you bowl game. You cannot take that. I'm That's taking what it. I'm taking. What are you going to say? Florida is terrible. What are you going to say? Florida is trash. Seven-point favorites that will be beaten by the Golden Knights. UCF I was gonna, straight up. I was going to say they were going to win by uh, more than a touchdown. More than a touchdown? That's what I was going to say. Okay, well, I'll give you that then since it's more bold than mine. Let me go find another. I was going to say uh, UCF because and the reason I was going to say that. And I can't you probably really, have a reason. I really have I, much I do. reason. They, they, for they were uh, Jeremy – Foley, who was AD at the time at Florida, was like, oh, we'll play you since Florida. Uh, since Florida's like, nobody plays, nobody plays. Oh, yeah, we'll play you. Yeah, we're not afraid. We'll play you. Oh, well, no, wait a minute. we got to go play at your place? No, 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 no. We'll play you, but you got to come to the swamp. We don't want to go there. We don't want to do a home-and-home. Or better yet, we'll play in Tampa, and then we'll go ahead and get all the, you know, 75% of the ticket sales, and you have 25%. So because Florida is so pompous and – uh, about it. That's why I think Central Florida is going to lose their mind. They finally get the game at Florida. Doesn't want to play them, and they wouldn't play them even if they play them neutral site. They weren't going to give them fifty percent of the tickets. So that's why I'm going with. I it. like that. That's a good reason. Uh, no one wants to travel extremely far, especially to play a meaningless bowl game. Now, the destination being Hawaii does help. Memphis is in Hawaii for the Easy Post Hawaii Bowl. Memphis eight and a half point favorites, but on the road in front of a hostile. Has anyone from Hawaii ever been called no. hostile? No, they're all very nice. Not the hostile Hawaii crowd. Hawaii with the home win in the Easy Post Hawaii Bowl. I, I'm pretty sure they get a little hostile at some of the surf competitions, but I don't think they do during the Aloha Bowl. The most welcoming. They put the lay around your neck once you get off the plane, right? The most welcoming, wonderful individuals in the entire world. Living in paradise, I guess. How could you not be? But Memphis will be out of their element in a hostile environment. An Easy Post Hawaii Bowl. So I guess that's my bold prediction. Quick shift. We've had like four or five of those this year, and you've always been the one to steal them, and you've got most of them right. So I'm doomed to have this wrong, and you're blessed to once again be in the good graces I, of the bold prediction. I have changed and won a couple and lost all those. 
There you go. So I like where you went with that. So Not been my year. Yeah, that's all right. Well, I, I thought you were going to go buckyball against his tenth win at Ole Miss this week. I that's what I thought you were going to. That's what I thought you were going to. Cannot do. believe. Merry Christmas, everybody. All right, we'll be back with you Especially on the New Year, twenty twenty-two. On another edition, Santa's Upkick. Buckingham Sports Network. <laughs>